Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to welcome trailblazing feminist, activist and writer Wendy McCarthy to Books, Books, Books to talk about her new memoir, Don't Be Too Polite Girls, published by Alan and Unwin earlier this year. Wendy McCarthy AO began her career as a secondary school teacher before moving into public life in 1968. Since then, she's worked across the public, private and community sectors in education, family planning, public health, mental health, overseas aid, media and the arts, amongst others. She was a founding member of the Women's Electoral Lobby in 1972. We're going to be talking a bit about that. And she has held leadership roles in national and international bodies too numerous to mention, but I thought I would just uh, mention a few of them. She was CEO of the Australian Federation of Family Planning Associations, 1979 to 1984. She was deputy chair of the ABC, 1983 to 91. She was chancellor of the University of Canberra, 1996 to 2005. Chair of Plan Australia, 1998 to 2009. Chair of Headspace, the National Mental Health Foundation, from 2008 to 2016, and Chair of Circus Oz, from 2007 to 17. She's founder and patron of the Sydney Women's Fund, and over the years she's established several businesses, including the national mentoring practice, McCarthy Mentoring, now owned by her daughter, Sophie McCarthy. Wendy, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you, Nicole. Great to be here. Now, I'd like to start by asking you about the title. Don't Be Too Polite Girls. Could you tell us about where that came from? I believe it comes from a song. There was a song that was sung in the shearing sheds um, for years called Down Among the Wool Boys, and I used to hear it. I knew the tune and I'd heard it. I don't think I really ever knew the words, but it was a catchy tune and I used to sort of jog along. And I heard it again in 1969 when a woman called Glenn Tomasetti, who was a scholar, a history scholar, um, she led a, a Vietnam um, Vets, uh, protest movement called Save Our Sons. And she re, um, wrote the lyrics to say, um, don't be too polite, girls, show a little fight, girls, and make sure that you know what your value is. That bit. That's not the line, but the rest of it is really about that and about always fighting back. And I loved that song from the minute I heard it. And then I used to, I loved her folk music and she and Margaret Roadnight teamed up and became friends and they used to do uh, folk shows all over Australia and they were two outstanding women. And in a sense, it was the first sort of anthem of feminism before the 70s. And when I was at um, bigger last week talking about my book, one of the things was lovely. Someone sang that first and then they sang I Am Woman at the end of it. And in a way, that sort of bookends, mm. the, the songs that meant a lot to women, they were instantly recognisable because basically they were simple tunes, simple melodies and very clear words. And I thought about it and Doris Lessing always said, if you're not sure what you're going to call a book, always best to go back the music that meant something to you at the time that you want to write about. And my first book, Don't Fence Me In, was about Frank Sinatra and the Andrews sisters and riding a pony with my dad towards the horizon. We used to sing along. And this one just, I had about 18 working titles. I was sliding them around. And this one just, I went to that and I thought, that's it. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it could be the zeitgeist for right now. Uh, it, it was also written in support of the 1969 High Court case for equal pay, right. wasn't it, which gives it a particular resonance. Yeah. So I was going to mention that. I knew that you'd written a memoir before, Don't Fence Me In, published in 2000. You published that almost 20 years ago when you were just about to turn 60. You're now 80, and you say in the book, being 60 is very different to being 80. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and why you decided to write this memoir. 
Um, well, the bones are older, Nicole. We can't deny the genetics. Mine seem to be reasonably good at this stage, but we, you know, we do need the spare parts industry in, in health. Um, I think, I, I think you know, there, our physiology changes from 60 to 80 quite significantly, and we do have to spend more time making sure that we're comfortable and healthy. But I think at a social and a personal and political level, there is a confidence that comes, and particularly now with being 80, that you know who you are, you know what your limits are, mostly, um, and you've got a point of view that you want to explore. And so I decided to write this book because I had had a few offers from publishers asking if I'd like to write something again. And I started off um, thinking uh, Quentin and I would do a conversation, but it, it, ne it never looked as good on the page as we thought it was, so we canned that idea. And they said, well, come back. We want you to write this anyway. So I started, and the pandemic started, so I tucked myself away on the beach, and I thought about how different 60 to 80 is. I could not have imagined my life at 60 doing the things that I did because I grew up in a profession where 55 was compulsory retirement teachers. And it, and most people said, you know, you'd reach the hill, but it, you're over the hill. But in fact, when you reflect on it, the life cycle of women means that really at 55 to 60, you've done all the things that define you as a woman. And now you can just get on with being the citizen you want to be and the person that you want to be. And you've, and, and with no regrets. And there are challenges there that, about the wisdom of elders. Mm. So I've practised the last 20 years getting wisdom. Let's go back to the beginning. In 1963, as a newly graduated teacher aged 22, you read The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, which you said changed your life. In what way? Tell us about that. Well, I was actually 20 when I read it because I was 20 when I started teaching. Um, and it's just worth saying that, that, the, that I was in a classroom and a staff room in a girls' school. I've ne never been inside a girls' school before because I'd always been to co-ed, where there were all these extraordinary women. They were well-educated. They were, I suppose, blue stockings because they had university education and they taught subjects that had always been the province of men in my schoolgirl life. And the staff room conversations were intellectual in a fog of smoke, of course. Um, those were the days when we all smoked in the staff room. But there was something really richly exciting about their conversations. And by and large, I hadn't met women like that because they, I had some women teachers, lecturers at university, but not many. I had a wonderful college principal. And when they started talking about this book and they suggested I read it, it was as though scales fell off my eyes about understanding what being female meant in a particular way and, under, and trying to think... Why had my mother and so many of her friends thought that being in the suburbs was a dream? And Betty Friedan said it became a gilded cage, effectively, and she had to find ways to get out of it, and she spent the rest of her life really trying to do that. And, and many of the changes in her life weren't as happy as they might have been, but she never wanted to go back to the restrictions of suburbia. I mean, I'd never thought, I wasn't thinking about getting married then. I wasn't mm. interested. I was just really interested in my job. But it opened up a whole range of intellectual possibilities, domestic possibilities, and the idea you can just be a woman without accoutrement. Wendy, I was wondering, you speak later in the book about being lucky enough to meet Betty, um, and I wondered if you spoke to her and if you had the opportunity to tell her the impact that that book had had on you when you were so young. I did. I did, and it was like, you know, some sort of pathetic young woman saying, oh, I've got a girl crush on you. <laughs> but she she was, her timing, she had a very distinctive gravelly voice and her timing was always perfect in an argument, which is probably why she survived a lot of the hostility she got when she really pulled the veils away from women's lives in suburbia. And I was sitting behind her at the conference in Copenhagen and Bella Absberg, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, all the feminist goddesses are here. How lucky am I? 
And I tapped her on the shoulder and said, as a young woman teacher, I read your book and I loved it and my life was never quite the same after that. And she said, thank you. Yes. In 1964, you married Gordon McCarthy, the love of your life. And after a stint overseas, you returned both of you to Sydney and you started a family. By 1973, you had the fearsome three under five, three children, Sophie, Hamish and Sam. Gordon expected and encouraged you to work outside the home from the word go. And in those early years of marriage, you learnt to be a feminist, you said, by reading books such as Jermaine Greer's The The Female Eunuch. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that book and the impact that that had on you. That had a strong impact on me, but the, the, the stronger impact, Nicole, was Kate Millay's book, Sexual Politics, which I was asked to read by the book buyer at Angus and Robertson's because he didn't think it would sell. And I went into him, he said, it'll, and he said, you, you don't look like the boiler suit brigade. Would you, re- uh, would you like to read it? He clearly didn't want to. And I said, yes, and I said, buy it, just buy it. People will buy it, buy it. And they did. So Jermaine's book was a glorious segue um, from that. And, but I was already prepared because I'd lived in America and, and I'd lived in, the, in London. And the lives of women were so different from the lives that women I knew in Australia had. And I'd done a lot of the writing of a lot of American literature at that time, women's literature. So I was probably an undercover feminist without knowing it at that time. How were they different, Wendy? They had domestic support in London, so that you know the au pair industry was alive and well. There were assumptions that they could, they would keep working after their children. Mm. And in America, I mean, America in terms of human rights really did race before it did gender. So I was watching what was playing out in race. So you know, and and then I was at the Washington marches, and then you know, and. Hate Ashbury and all those places that we were just drawn to because we were listening to protest. And we lived in America in 66, 67, late 66, 67. And so I'd never really seen protests like this before. And, of course, I wasn't living in Australia when the Vietnam War started and or when the protests started. So Jermaine Greer's book, I think, more than anything centred the sense that an Australian woman who might seen me performing in shows at Oxford and put lights, reviews, that an Australian woman could write a book that stripped back again the wraps around how we looked at women's lives and how we looked at women's bodies and what we looked at women's careers and how we needed to claim something of ourselves. It didn't put me into a feminist battle line in the same way as American literature did. You say that from the time you married Gordon, you always believed it was possible to be a strong feminist, a good mother and a good wife. You have achieved that in spades and I wondered how much of that is down to choosing the right partner? How important is that? Oh, look, I think the right partner through life is just the most wonderful thing if it can happen. And, you know, sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. You know, I think we grew we grew up together. We were 22 and 23 when we were married. And I don't think either of us ever thought we were going to be married at that age. And But I think just being on our own in London and Europe and the US, we didn't have anyone else to go to. And it's a hugely beneficial thing for a new relationship just to be able to find out who we are together, who we are separately, how we make that work, and to dream about other things, interested in the idea of what it meant to be Australian when we came back. And that's been, and for even in the first 10 years we were back, I suppose, now maybe the first five, I was still really interested in that. But by then I had a qualification. It was what was meant to, what, what did we mean by being an Australian woman? And I think, and Gordon was really interested in what it meant to be Australian and he kept saying, you know, how, how come, the, you know, the Swedes, the Scandinavians can do all these things with a small population and we don't do this? And he pursued his business and political interests in that direction, whereas I was trying to work out 
how you could be the mother, wife, and so on. But there was an, it was an intellectual framework, but it was but it was the personal political nature of it that enabled us to stick together and both benefit from it. So let's talk about your first real profession, uh, real political involvement. I guess we're not going to get through the whole of your life. So what I've done is selected just a few key professional and personal episodes yep. for us to discuss. So I want to start with the women's electoral lobby in 1972. So in March 1972, you were part of a group of women who met to hear Beatrice Faust talk about setting up a women's political lobbying group to be called the Women's Electoral Lobby. Could you tell us a bit about that and about the nationwide survey that she wanted you to do? Who were you to survey and and what about? Uh, Beatrice Faust had read an article in um, an American article in an American magazine and which had enabled the establishment and development of National Organisation of Women Now. And they, as a project, interviewed the people standing for the next government to see what their views were about women in politics and society. She picked it up, it was the cleverest thing, and remodelled it um, to make it Australian and she visited the connections she had, which were mostly through abortion law reform. Because mm. even then, for us... The key things for women were about education and health, mm-hmm. and abortion goes into health, mm. and it goes into education too because you have to know you, you have to know your rights in order to be able to pursue them. Mm. So her networks were through the abortion law reform, and strangely, I came to that through um, childbirth education, where I'd been um, campaigning for the rights of fathers to be present at birth and to have choice in birth, and it seemed to me not a long move to make that if you're looking for choice in birth you needed to go back a step and think can you have choice about whether or not you want to be pregnant and can you choose the time so she got a team together and of the 12 women there and one bloke although I have no recollection of him but everyone else swears he was there um anyway I three of us volunteered I didn't have the faintest idea what we were doing really but we it seemed like such a fabulous idea to find out what Australian men thought about where women fitted. So was it specifically politicians that you were going to interview? We went to everyone standing for the federal election and we had a survey that we'd be able to score nationally and to give the results to every electorate about what their candidates were thinking about the role of women. And that's exactly what we did. So a lot of us learned to interview and to do surveys and all sorts of things. And Eva Cox and people who were really good at that sociology, they were the advisors and we were the gophers out on, out on foot. So three of us co-convened. At that stage, we didn't like hierarchies. So we always called ourselves co-conveners and things like that. There was this sort of thing about the later written of the tyranny of structurelessness, but right then it was about structurelessness being the most effective way. And you talk about meeting in, I love the descriptions of meeting around kitchen tables because the Always. kitchen was the hearth of the house. Always. So that's where you met. It, while exactly. your kids were at school or your kids were at childcare, yes. that was where you met and brainstormed. Yes, it was. And I can remember one day I was having a well meeting there and, there, and I lived in a house in McMahon's Point that had one of those big old-fashioned verandas and used to have childbirth education classes there. And there's, down the veranda there's a childbirth class with a physio teaching them and in my kitchen, uh, four of us around the kitchen table talking about the politics of childbirth. It was so much fun. Wendy, I wanted you to, to tell our listeners um, about the favourite response you got from a male politician and that was Sir John Kramer, the men, member for Benelong. Could you tell us about that? One of the questions was what attributes would you most admire or would you think really important for women to have facing political office? And he said, virginity. I mean, we are talking 1972. Where did he come from? And actually, I taught his daughter at school. And I'm thinking, like those of us for whom, you know, it was no longer an issue, thought, what are we worth? Nothing. But, I mean, it was gobsmacking. He just sort of bluffed it out. You said something really interesting in this section of the book that I wanted to ask you about. You said you were very comfortable about being involved with the women's electoral body, but you said you were in denial 
about identifying yourself as a woman's liver. And I wondered why that was and what was the difference between the two? I think we saw very marked differences and, of course, with the, the wisdom of age, um, I see that with more clarity and I also see how important it was that there were both. Women's liberation came from the US and it was a quite defined movement and it was basically revolutionary. It was get rid of the patriarchy and rebuild a world where women were leaders and had the opportunities that men had. Now, I loved that idea at one level, but I couldn't see it happening in my lifetime. I'm much more pragmatic than that. and But I could see there were opportunities for women to be reformists. So in shorthand terms, women's liberation was revolutionary, mm. women's electoral was reformist, but we both had the same shopping lists, you know, So, but we went about ours in a different way. But, of course, at the same time, you know, we talked to each other and shared a lot of things. But in some ways it was a very useful divide because you could say women's electoral lobby people setting up, say, places in Wagga, a very conservative regional centre, would say, no, 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 we're not women's liberals, mm. we're from women's electoral lobby. And mm. well was a good name. It's a very positive name, well, even if it's missing an L. <laughs> but I think that we... And we were also enthusiastic about it and we wanted our own sort of brand, really, and, and I think it worked well. But most of the Women's Liberation people, you know, we were in the same marches in, uh, in the streets for the things we wanted, like access to contraception and um, termination of pregnancy and education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You write that both your mother and your mother-in-law tried to stop you told you to stop trying to change things, not to be so bold. They even told you that you would ruin your marriage. How did your husband Gordon respond to you championing, championing the voices and the rights of women? I think he found it really exciting. I, I mean, that's the shorthand. And I think he thought it was time and he thought it was ridiculous for me to have all this experience and education if I wasn't going to contribute it and get involved in the community. So in our first community thing, when we were saving McMahon's Point, you know, we were both painting things on poles and running around the community in the dead of the night. So I think, you know, as, an, as urban gorillas, we were good mates and, and all the other sort of gorillas we needed to be worked together. Wendy, let's talk just for a bit about family planning. In 1974, you joined the Board of Family Planning New South Wales, and in 1975, you you took on a paid role there as the media information and the education officer, and you effectively became, as you say, a community sex educator. You write, and it's almost incredible to someone of my generation to hear it, which is why I want you to talk about it, about how ignorant people were in those days, so that's mid-1970s, about sex and contraception and about how hard it was to get the pill. Can you tell us a bit about that, about what it was like in those days? Well, when the oral contraceptive came to Australia, um, it attracted a luxury cosmetics tax. So even for those of us who heard about it and found out and wanted to try it, it was still quite hard to get. So when I went to a doctor to get it in 1964, he said to me, I couldn't give it to you unless I knew that you were married. And I said, well, I'm going to be married in three months. And he said, well, I'll give you a script which will be dated at that time. So I was effectively telling me not to use contraception before I was married. And was that the law? Was that a legal requirement? Or was that just something that the individual doctors imposed? Well, it was many doctors thought that that's what they should do, mm. regulate our sex lives. Mm. I remember, you know, the person who became the superintendent of family planning, Edith Weisberg, wonderful doctor, um, was given the same advice and she said by the time she got off the boat in London because we all went on boats to London with her husband she was pregnant <laughs> because she didn't take it in time I couldn't get it so but I told one of my friends and she just got a double script so I just you know started taking it um, and I wasn't pregnant when I got to London and I think that that's probably you know what we did but the first one of the first acts of the Whitlam government on winning the election and a wonderful speech Gough made in the House was to take the luxury tax off the oral contraceptive. It was, it was such a metaphor for the freedom of women to be sexual people. 
And Wendy, I love that during that period you were for 10 years the um, the sex advisor to Clio magazine. So was that does that mean you were like the agony art that people wrote in yeah. with letters yeah. about their sex problems yes, yes. And, and you I would respond? Used my name, which a lot of people said I shouldn't do, but I don't believe in anonymous information or gu- guidance. I think you have to stand by it. I did it for 10 years and I loved it and I still meet people who say, oh, so good, I didn't go out with that bloke anymore, you told me to stop it and I met someone else. And But I used to I used to get a lot of letters. I loved writing it because it's like having a great big conversation with the community. And lots of men used to write and boys used to write in too and mm. it, was, it was good. Did they write in anonymously or did they have their names attached? Both, both. And... And often they wrote as high school groups and people said to me, oh, you know, they're just having you on. And I said, no, because if they take the time to write, they're actually seeking information. And to be anonymous, of course, is a great gift in these moments because you'd probably, every week I'd probably get, you know, say 20 of the sort of up to 100 letters I'd get. Um, They'd cluster around themes and you could you know that you're answering the, the questions of many, many teenagers at the time. And I love the part where you said that you were very popular with the neighbourhood kids and with your friends' oh, teenagers yeah. because they saw you as the all wisdom in all matters sexual. <laughs> Sophie could never decide that was a benefit or not. <laughs> She'd take the Cleo magazines to school in her because I got them a week ahead of anyone else. So they'd be hanging around our place or she or she or one of her brothers would take it and say, you know, this is what my mother knows. And, of course, most children have a very firm belief that their parents never have sex and they like it that way. Too horrible to think about. Let's talk now about your corporate roles. You, have, you write quite a lot in this book about um, corporate governance and you have just such a broad experience across public, private and not-for-profit sectors um, in such a diverse range of areas, in education, mental health, Star Casino even, the circuits, the ABC, various other corporate boards. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about the role of what you describe yourself as, which is a specialist generalist, uh, rather than somebody who was appointed because of your particular deep knowledge of a particular sector. Tell us about that role, about specialist generalist, and the value that that adds to a board? Well, I think it comes back to what we mean by governance and how governance is different from management. I mean, originally the boards were described as boards of governance and managers were the executives. And when appointed to boards, people often think they're there to be the managers and they simply are not. And governors have a broader view of the world and they think about strategy, that's their role, and then they hand that on to the executives who would have been part of the strategic development role and to do it. And then we hold the managers to account. And I had a very clear view that that was the role of the governor. So after I worked that out, um, and to some extent my first appointment to the Higher Education Board helped me do that because... When the minister called me to ask if I would do that role, I said, no, I wouldn't know anything about that. And he said, well, you've got a degree, haven't you? Now, it didn't occur to me that one degree would, you know, fit me for a board because women always undervalue their capacity for to do something different. So I said, oh, and he said, well, he said, I'm really sick of people like you you know, running little lobby groups about education for women and girls and you're offered an opportunity and you're not even looking as though you want to take it. And I said, can I just have 24 hours to think about it because it's a very new idea. And he said, yep. And he rang me exactly 24 hours later and he said, what's the answer? And I said, I'll do it. And he said, well, I'm really pleased. I think you'll enjoy it. But when I got there, there were the board had 18 people and 17 were either engineers or bureaucrats. And I could see that my life experience, my teaching frontline experience, my work in communities, the fact that I'd lived in, you know, overseas, I'd, I'd worked in other communities around the world, I actually was quite well qualified. And the first big thing that came up was whether nurses should be um, trained in universities or educated in universities. And the opposition to it, particularly from doctors, to not have them with a university education was astonishing. But anyway, it got through. So I've, and then 
Uh, and I've also, I also know that if you know everything when you go somewhere, why would you go there? So I knew that those opportunities were learning experiences. I didn't think I would inflict terminal damage. I'm good with the socio-politics in a boardroom. I can bring people together. And I began to understand that, and a lot of that comes from teaching, because in teaching you research and you synthesise and you present and then you correct or explain and that's a high skill in the boardrooming. Most teachers mm. have not been able to turn their skills around and to be able to do that. But there, may, there are many people in my life who could, and some of them I've dragged onto boards, um, who are more than capable of being very good non-executive directors in a variety of places. The hardest one in terms of probably was um, the class action group, which was IMF Bentham, because essentially it's a financial organisation. But, you know, finances and decisions about money are still about people and class actions are about people. And there's a, there's a place for all of us at the boardroom. And the last thing I would say about it, all boards should look like the communities they represent. That's all of us. Wendy, I love the fact that, and that's pretty much what you've just been talking about, but you say to women reading your book that if somebody thinks you can do it, you can. And yeah. you said, say yes and work it out later. And I wondered why you've touched on it just now, but why do you think women are more reluctant to do that than men? I think we are not confident because we we haven't seen a lot of people do it and not every woman or every man who does it has been encouraging us to the view that we can. I just think it's just another part of the world we need to explore and inhabit because I want a world that's 50-50 and I don't think we should settle for less. Wendy, I thought it was interesting. Many people have given you unsolicited career advice over the, over the years, told you that you shouldn't take something on or you shouldn't do something. For example, in 1997, you were offered a board role with Star Casino and a lot of people told you not to take that on. And you say that there's a perversity in your character which makes you resist being stereotyped. I'd like you to tell us a bit about that perversity and how it has worked to your advantage. Well, fundamentally, I'm curious. I'm curious about life, I'm curious about things, I'm curious about processes, etc. But this was a fascinating thing that it was this there are a lot of places where things are defined as not appropriate roles or for women. Um, religion, we're not invited to take the leading roles in churches, we are the handmaidens of the men. Um, and that was once the case between doctors and nurses. Um, so why should a woman not be able to be on a board of directors of a casino? But most of all, why should I not engage in what was a really fascinating thing, which is to try and beat Kerry Packer at his own game? And I found that really pretty interesting. So various people, probably some of them actually knew Kerry Packer, made a point of saying it's not a suitable job for a woman. So if it's not a suitable job for a woman, why do we give them licences? Why do we take their money? I mean, and, you know, most, and, and why would we decide that it's the men who gamble and it's the men who run it and none of this is women's business? I think everything is women's business. And for most people... Going into a casino is going into Disneyland with a gambling palace in the middle. The lights, the fun, etc. And most people are not addicted. The worst places, and, and but the other thing about that, we're on a promise that that would be the only casino and that there would be no more poking, poker machine licences. Now, that meant a casino destination and not too many poker machines. The government did not keep that promise, which I always found really infuriating. And, and anyway, casinos now are in trouble. But I still think there's no reason women shouldn't be, have the choice. Wendy, you've had a truly portfolio career, something that you talk about. 
um, ranging from teaching to family planning, mental health to the ABC, tertiary education to the circus, what you call a non-linear career. And I wanted you to talk about how rewarding that has been and whether you have any regrets that you didn't pursue a more linear path. Well, I think the linear pathway stopped for me when teaching was no longer going to be my long linear career. So that little dream cupboard that I had away there tucked away in my head about how much fun it would be to be a principal of a girls' school became more and more remote. And the barriers were there and you either fight the barriers or you find something else to do. So I did a bit of both. And just if you explain to our listeners, you had to stop being a teacher once you got married in those days, is that it? It wasn't uniform across Australia. In my case, New South Wales teachers weren't... um, discriminated against in that way and also they had equal pay but they were discriminated against in them all the teachers that I worked with married women they had had to do that so when you looked into the future and whose shoes you were walking in you knew that some of these wonderfully blue stocking intellectual wonderful teachers um, especially in literature uh, I remember thinking you you couldn't they were casual they could be just given two days' work for a week, they did frequently didn't have, you know, long-term appointments. So it was professionally unsatisfying, but because, A, they want to earn an income, B, they wanted recognition, and C, they love teaching, they put up with it. So I could see that it, that wasn't going to work for me, and in any event, in case anyone thinks I got every job I tried for, I didn't. I had about 20 things that did not work for me at that time, and I thought... I think the world is speaking to me. My world is speaking to me and saying, you better find something else to do. So I changed the classroom. So the classroom became the community. And, of course, I'm glad in retrospect because I've had a different life because of that. But who knows what my life would have been as a teacher long term. So I learned to be opportunistic about roles that I took. And what I've discovered about myself, you know, 20 years later and subsequently is actually I'm very good at startups. Mm-hmm. So I went to places where other women would not go in some cases, like the casino, although there was a queue behind me who wanted to do it. Um, and I stayed there until I thought it was a settled matter and I made, tried to make sure that I got another woman at least on the board if I was on a board and, and replaced myself with a woman. So the scary bit had been taken away and people who were really good at linear consolidation and moved that way found that very good and I realised that I loved the chance to do something where someone had faith in me I'd never done before. I found that really exciting. Mm. Let's talk now about female friendships which have been such an important part of your life I know and you say that you couldn't imagine your life without your women friends. Could you just talk a little bit about the importance of female friendship in your life? I think they were such a surprise as a, as a phrase because although my mother had female fr- friendships, her life was still much more defined by the men. So they went where the men went, they provided for the men and if that didn't work with the wife of a certain man, they would drop the friendship. And so I'd never thought about it as a thing until I realised how many women friends I had, I had no idea, and especially in the first stages of the women's movement, I wouldn't have known who their husbands were, what suburb they lived in. All I knew was we were committed to this amazing idea to make the change. And half a dozen times since then I've been in those big movements where it's enough that we are women. And when it came to the pro-choice thing in two, campaign in 2019, What was amazing is many of us who'd worked before in women's electoral lobby, there we were, the grannies, out on the front line, and I think they're precious friendships and they're born of common values um, and beliefs and commitments to what it means to be a female in Australia, and that's a pretty precious thing. And most of my women friendships are about that and and. And then, of course, there's proximity. But, I mean, Susan is, Susan Ryan is a very precious person in my life, Quentin, and Hazel. And, you know, I knew Hazel long before I knew Bob. 
I'd like to ask you a little bit about your friendship with Quentin Bryce, starting with um, how did you meet? How did you become friends? We ended up in a motel in Canberra in 1978 for a cocktail party to be um, convened by Beryl Beaurepair to introduce us all to each other as a newly appointed National Women's Advisory Council, which had been appointed by Bob Ellicott on behalf for Malcolm Fraser. And it was given a big task. And so Quentin was this wonderful young woman, so beautiful, and and, uh, Beryl leant over to me. Not that I'd met Beryl before, and she said, I think you might have to look after Quentin in Canberra. And I said, well, that won't be a problem because straight away we knew we were going to be friends. We were given a whole new task. We were given three years to look to... um, partly implement some of the work of the Royal Commission on Human Relationships, which had been battered on from the Whitlam government to the Fraser government who'd committed to it, and that was a lot around family planning and homosexuality and an extraordinary thing. But we were given the task of working our way through um, the issues for around the status of women and... We did, you know, community consultations. I know people think they're doing them for the first time now, but we actually did them in 1978, but everything old is new again. And we, I mean, we travelled around Australia. It was how do we improve the status of women in terms of really the feminist agenda um, and and to some extent uh, probably with a focus on the leadership of women. And it was a different model from a model the Labor Party would have put up because Labor parties tend to people those entities by representatives from different interest groups. Uh, the liberal way was to choose individual women and assume that they would make those decisions on their own from their own background and not be answerable to any um, group they came from and that of course meant that things could happen faster and they did to everyone's surprise. Coming back to your friendship with Quentin in 1989 when your husband Gordon was living at your farm Sophie and Hamish were away at university Quentin came to live with you and your youngest son Sam during the week while she was sex discrimination commissioner she was told that she had to live in Sydney to have that role and she had to leave behind her husband and her five kids in Queensland she was still there, you say, in 1994, five years later. And I wondered what it was like to live with a friend in that way over such a long period it was just as adults. Really. It, it never felt, you know, when you say it, it sounds a long time, but it didn't, doesn't feel like that because we were incredibly interested in each other's work and we had, you know, and, and we had dinner parties probably, you know, twice, twice a week. Um, and, you know, she went home to her family at the weekend and mine were picked up and we went to the country. And I don't know, it was it was a very lovely way to live. And, and of course, we got to know each other's children really well, which was also fabulous. So it was quite easy for me to have, you know, a, a cluster of Bryce children and she'd have a cluster of McCarthy children at different times. And... I mean, it's just a really wonderful, enduring friendship. Wendy, let's talk about a topic close to my heart and to yours, and that's reading. There's a chapter in your book called The Things That Make Us, and I noticed that the first thing that you included, along with another of my personal favourites, which is food, is reading. (laughs) Tell us a bit about your reading life. I can't remember the first time I actually knew I was reading, but my mother says I was reading by four or five. And um, and there's a strange thing I was thinking because my 11-year-old grandson, a bit of a segue now, rang me up last week to say he was page 180 in my book. And I said, I didn't, hadn't thought about it being for 11-year-old market, Luca. And he said, <laughs> well, I'm sick of my book, school books. And he said, I started reading. I read the prologue and then I read the first chapter and I thought, I love all this stuff about feminism. So at the moment he's definitely back in the world. <laughs> he's reading so I then because I lived in remote you know rural areas mostly and there was no telephone um, and um, it's not hardship when I explain this to you it was just the way it was 
often the only person in my class. Mm -hmm. So I just read my way through everything that was possible. And we got a lot of magazines. You know, the Reader's Digest and those magazines were flogged to people in the countries, as were gift catalogues. You know, I read Grace Brothers and David Jones' catalogues. So it probably led me to clothes and other things. But I just always read. And even though we didn't have electricity, and so we all had hurricane lanterns or at one, then we moved on to those sort of gas pump lanterns where we would, I, would, I would read at night. And I, when I was told the books weren't appropriate for me, I would change the slipcovers. So I'm, I remember reading The Cruel Sea. I didn't have a clue what happened, but I knew something was happening there that I didn't know about. I just flicked the pages. And I told my mother later, but it was, that was definitely an adult book. And we did have a um, – and she went out and bought the – condensed the, the children's version of it for me. And I said, no, no, I don't want to read that. I've already read it. And she looked absolutely shocked. And I said, no, I read it. You know, we've got it here. She said, no, this is a different one. Anyway, I'd read it. So I was reading a lot of books at that time. And what I, about now? Tell me about your reading life now. Do you read fiction or nonfiction, a combination of both? Oh, both. Definitely both. I read five or six newspapers a day. I read... Um, Business magazine. Sometimes uh, I read. Uh, I listen to podcasts, but I, but in terms of reading, I yeah I, I, I read a lot on my um, computer, and then I belong to a book club. So where I'm reading for a book club, and I read a lot of um, contemporary Australian writing, and then I have a big thing, and I read a lot of American. Um, fiction at the moment, or I have done for the last five or six years. No, I, I mean, I couldn't think of a life without reading. I think it would be the last thing in the world that I could think that someone could punish me was to take me away from books. Wendy, I'm going to finish by asking you about the Pro-Choice Alliance. 2019, you were leader of that alliance whose goal was to work with the New South Wales MPs in support of a bill to decriminalise abortion in New South Wales. So New South Wales was the last state in which abortion was still a crime in the statute books. Were you surprised in 2019 about the resistance and opposition to the move to decriminalise it? Yes, I was. Um, but not as much as the politicians were because I, I knew there would be opposition but I also knew that 80%, that number's been a very constant number for 30-odd years, 40 years, of people assume that it should be a health matter between a woman and her doctor. I knew we had the support of the fantastic alliance across Parliament when I went to see the health minister and said to him, you know, we didn't bring it on before the election, but I know that you know we want it done now. We have to get it off the criminal code. We are too vulnerable and, and it's unfinished business. He agreed and he said, trust me. And I'm thinking, always risky, but yes, I do. And he basically said to me, you need to make sure the community comes behind us. They thought it would be over and done with mm. in a very short time. I didn't think that. I was talking to the health minister, but I know that he was talking to the premier and, um, and, and I knew she was committed to getting it done and, and the other side of politics was too. So it was a cross-party alliance independence. But I know that for people of faith, um, it's a very, it, it's almost impossible for them to willingly give um, approval to this sort of legislation. But I think, and I, I read, enough, read enough American literature and news to know and then what was happening in Trump land. And... I could see this was a worldwide movement and that's part of the reason we convened to start getting ourselves organised. And I knew I had 70 organisations backing us and I was fairly sure we would get through. But my colleagues, the political partners, thought it would take two to four weeks and it took months to get through there and I think that was a surprise to many people. But it would, if you opened it up again, the numbers would probably be the same because but, it's 
not possible for them to leave their um, their articles of faith, really. You write uh, in your book that there was a lot of public ignorance and that a lot of people were asking you why you were bothering um, because they believed, wrongly, that abortion was available on demand in New South Wales. Why were they wrong? Why was it so important to change the law? Well, there was a case in New South Wales and that really shocked us. Mm. And, of course, it was a very vulnerable young woman who already had some children and that is always the way it falls. It and is she was so prosecuted. There. She, so she, she was prosecuted or charged mm. with a crime and was looking down the barrel to 10 years. It was incomprehensible, but you know that when these things happen, the poorest of women, their children go with them, the poorest of women have no resources to fight back. Um, it's just lucky that the Women's Legal Service picked it up and helped manage the process with some other good lawyers around. They found good lawyers to do it. <laughs> And it's okay, the rest of us, and the other thing, that that was one set of circumstances. The other was we found there were about a 1,000 women moving across borders to get terminations of pregnancy. And this I mean, was women living in rural and remote areas yes, where access, yes. it was very difficult to actually access right. an abortion. And so a woman went for the weekend. Nobody knows what she goes for. She goes away for two week, a weekend, two days in the weekend to get a termination of pregnancy. It's like the women in my time at university who disappeared. So that is unacceptable in today's world and that's what just kept us totally and utterly focused and it kept the politicians focused too. And I have to say we have to be proud of those who, who carried it through. But hopefully we never have to re, re, um, readdress that matter. Wendy, my final question was um, you did describe that as being the great unfinished business of your career as a feminist. So I wondered if driving that change, the decriminalisation of abortion, I wondered if that was your proudest achievement and if not, what was? I think it was my proudest professional achievement and it's a personal political one. But, of course, we can't go past my children and my marriage. <laughs> to be able to be married to someone you love for a long time is pretty amazing and to have three children you love and their partners and the grandchildren. And as I say at the end of the book, the grandmothers are coming. Wendy, thank you so much for speaking with me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been really wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.